All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Luther's small catechism with explanation. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, for ever and ever. Amen. Just by way of uh, reorientation, you recall that the only the first few pages of this text in front of you, the 2017 edition of the Small Catechism, only the first few pages in the beginning constitute the Small Catechism, properly speaking, and we're spending some time in the explanation, which is if you took that Small Catechism and kind of blew it out in outline form and then interjected a number of uh, pertinent questions and scriptural references, that's the explanation. Now, last week we picked up on page 53 in this text, looking at the explanation and, and what it has to say in regard to the Ten Commandments uh, in general. And it gives us a couple of key distinctions and vocabulary words that we it would do good for us to just look at these once more. Now, of course, the Catechism itself has, do you recall, how many chief parts? Six chief parts, and the commandments are the first of those parts, okay? Um, after the commandments, we're going to be looking at the creed, that's the second chief part, followed by the Lord's Prayer, followed by baptism, absolution, and the Lord's Supper. Those are the six chief parts. So we're still on the first chief part. We're here in the explanation, and we're being reminded of this first kind of important point to keep in our minds. And that is found, how did God give his law to us? He writes his law on the heart of every human creature. And he gives us conscience that bears witness to that law. This is sometimes called the natural law. And it is why all human beings everywhere have a sense of morality, a sense of right and wrong. And it is more or less uniform. So um, the natural law... And then the Ten Commandments are a reflection of that natural law. And sometimes we'll refer to the Ten Commandments as the natural law simply because it's a reflection of that natural law. This is where St. Paul is arguing in Romans, if you recall, that whether you have the law or not, whether you have the Ten Commandments or not, you still know what a sin is. You're still accountable before God. All right. So that's the first important point that was brought up. The next important point that was brought up are the three uses of the law. A curb, a mirror, and a guide. Now the curb functions off self-interest. It's a carrot and a stick, with the law almost always a stick. Okay? So it doesn't look to conform your inner man or your inner heart in any way. It just says, don't do this or else there's a consequence. And so it, it turns your self-interest from, why wouldn't I walk into that bank and grab all the cash, to, oh, because if I do, I'll get to keep none of it and spend 40 years in prison. So which is more of better interest to myself, not to rob the bank? You see, so it simply leverages self-interest. That's the curb function. The mirror function is the theological function, and the most important because it drives us to Christ. It shows us as we really are. You know, you wake up in the morning and you might imagine that you look great till you, uh, till you go into the mirror. You look up and you see, you know, you've got drool coming down your face, your hair's going every which way. The mirror shows us as we truly are, and that's God's Ten Commandments. It shows us our sin and shows us the need we have for a Savior. Third use of the law is the law as guide. Okay? So we're converted by Christ. We love God because he first loved us. What shape and form does that love take? The Ten Commandments. It's kind of a big mistake in Christianity. It's, I, I think it's relatively rare, although in Lutheran circles maybe not so much. But it's this idea of Christ sets you free from the law. Now you're free. Free to do what? Whatever your heart desires. Is that right? No. That actually takes us back to where we started. Because where we started is the self curved in on itself. 
uh, incurvata sensei, the self curved in on itself, doing whatever it wants to do. And the gospel doesn't just baptize that and say, keep doing whatever you want to do. That rather, what we see then is saved from the condemnation of the law. We are free with St. Paul in Romans to delight in the law with our inner man. And then that law serves a clarifying, actually a freeing function, because it frees us from all the questions that the sinful flesh and the devil and the world bring to mind about what is truly a good work. Do you need to run out to a monastery to do good works? No. Do you need to become a a pastor of some ministry in order to do good works? No. Your good works are defined by the Ten Commandments in your vocation. We're going to talk about that specifically today, but your place and calling in life. And there are three chief places and callings in life. Um, The first, are you a husband or wife? If not, you can ignore that. That's not a vocation to which you have been called, a station life to which you've been called. Okay, And then second to that, are you a mother or a father? And then the reciprocal, a child. Okay, So you're going to see, are you a parent or a child? That's a station in life. And then third, last but not least, in our way of speaking, it would be employer-employee. Are you above people? Uh, managing them, or are you underneath people being managed? Um, very often in our world today, it's both. And so you have people underneath you that you're managing, That's then you need to look at that as you're their employer, and then yet you're answerable to somebody else, so in that sense you're an employee. Okay, those are the three loci of vocations, and of course we can talk about minor vocations and kind of extensions of those vocations, but those are the chief three biblical vocations, all right? So then conducting yourself in those vocations according to God's commands, that's the goal. Do you remember St. John in his epistle, his first epistle, he says, I write these things to you that you may not sin, but if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus the Righteous One. So plan A of the Christian life is we don't go on sinning that grace may abound. We seek to delight in and practice the law of God. Will we fail? Inevitably so. Thanks be to God. He gives us an advocate, our Savior Jesus Christ, who forgives us our sins and helps to heal us so that we can move forward in the fight against our flesh. So far, so good? All right. Those are the three uses of the law. Um, Let's see. And then the other distinction I think that is just worth reviewing very briefly is the distinction between original or inherited sin, as it's called, and actual sin. Um, so every human being, simply by virtue of being a human being, is sinful by nature. And uh, d- does that mean we're a bad creation? Does that mean to be human is to be bad? No, God made good creatures. We are. He makes male and female, and he makes us good, and yet we are totally and entirely corrupted by our fall into sin. That's original sin. Such that the self is curved in on itself, as we said just a minute ago. And our bondage is precisely like, well, I'll, I as a sinner will do whatever I want to do. And all of that is selfish. Self-serving. Me first. And that's kind of a working, working pop cultural definition of uh, original sin. Is I have my own interests at heart and in mind, constantly. And as soon as I even concede a little bit of my own self-interest for the interest of another, I immediately think I need what? A pat on the back. Look how amazing and good I am, so that even my self-sacrifice becomes just yet another opportunity of self-aggrandizement. Yeah, that's the, that's our fallen nature. All right, so that gives us a good um, a good... Review. Any questions or comments you had left over on that section? All right, we are going to fly along as best as we can. So if we turn to page 58, we'll see the first commandment. You shall have no other gods. And what you're going to see in these pages to come is all kinds of questions that are of interest, and I commend them to you for further study. We're simply not able to go word by word, line by line, question by question through the catechism, or else we would be here probably until next Easter maybe longer. So 
What I'm going to do is just select some of the, some of the items that I think get to the root issue being taught here in the Catechism. Now, the first point on the, you shall have no other gods, the first commandment would be this, that whatever we fear, love, and trust in God, or whatever, excuse me, whatever we fear, love, and trust is our God. So, you can think of how subtle our idolatry is. I fear, love, and trust in money. I fear, love, and trust in the state. I fear, love, and trust in my doctor. I fear, love, and trust in science. I fear, love, and trust in all the things I expect are going to preserve me and benefit and bless me. And so these are very subtle forms of idolatry that the, that this commandment shows us. And, and in fact, our fallen nature never ceases to be idolatrous. So this gives us great opportunity to analyze ourselves and confess. But now, a great distinction is to be made between that kind of subtle idolatry and crass, material, profound idolatry, such that you go, well, I'm already, I mean, you wouldn't want to argue this way. Well, I'm already an, idol, an idolater anyway because I worship mammon and fear, love, and trust in money. Um, so what's it hurt if I go to the pagan temple and offer a sacrifice? You would not want to argue that way. You'd want to make a distinction and say, those subtle idolatries I can never be free of. I confess against them. But the crass and manifest idolatries, like joining a false religion or participating in a false religion, I can and should and will avoid. Does that make sense? So it's this latter point that I really want to focus on. And to do so, let's turn to page... Um, it would be page 65... And this is something we're often told, even bumper stickers that say coexist. <laughs> Have you seen those? Infer this thing. Um, and, and this is, uh, it's essentially the idea rampant in our culture that your, your specific religion doesn't matter. So if you look at question 41 on the bottom of page 65, here is the question. Do all religions worship the same God? No, all religions do not worship the same God. And here we have a nice little treatment. Um, point A, some religions teach that life includes a spiritual dimension, but they reject the Creator and His salvation in Jesus. For example, Hinduism, Buddhism, Shintoism, and also various folk religions, with a reference there to Romans 1. If we flip over to page 66... We're going to see a couple other points, points B through F. Point B, some religions claim to worship the God of Abraham and may even regard the Old Testament as sacred writings, but they reject the triune God by rejecting his salvation in Jesus Christ. For example, Islam and Judaism. Not the same as Christianity. C. Some religions claim to be Christian and hold the Bible sacred, but reject Scripture's witness that Jesus is the true Son of God, one with the Father, and therefore also deny the doctrine of the Trinity. For example, Mormonism and the Jehovah's Witnesses, outside of the pale of Christianity. And then D. Some religious practices involve keeping or seeking help from supernatural forces rather than God the Creator, who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. For example, Wicca, which by the way is on the rise. Wicca or satanic arts such as sorcery, superstitions, spirits of the dead, good luck charms, psychics, Ouija boards, astrology, etc. Okay, so this all of this, by the way, is um very, very rapidly gaining ground in our culture. Um, just the kind of crass occultism. Um, so have your eye out for that. But obviously, um, this is uh, demon worship. All right, E, some religions, quote-unquote religions, or moral philosophies combine elements of the above, idolize humanity, or simply believe in a generic deity. For example, moralistic therapeutic deism, humanism, and certain lodges. They reject God's exclusive revelation of salvation in Jesus Christ alone. All right, and then point F, the one true God reveals himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This one true God in the person of the Son became flesh in Jesus Christ. There is no other God. 
So very plainly, Luther's way of handling this was uh, when someone would say, you know, try to infer, well, we worship the same God, his response was, oh, so you worship a God who hung beaten and naked on a cross. Well, no, of course not. But that's the only God I know. And that just drives the point home. And I think it provides, you know, a nice template, word it your own way, but a nice template when, you know, you're getting your hair cut and the barber asks you, you know, oh, you're a, are you a Christian or do you go to church? Or, you know, these kinds of conversations arise from time to time. I'm a Buddhist. We're about the same thing. No, I don't think so. Uh, do you believe in God? And you get your answer, well, yes. Okay, did your God hang naked on a cross? Was your God born of a virgin? Was your God true man and resurrected from the grave? No, that's not my God. Well, I don't think we have the same God, but let me tell you about the true God. And that gives you an opportunity to, to bear witness, have a conversation. So we want to be clear in our thinking about this. I presume everyone in this room is. But again, we're just simply going through the basics here. Um, we don't all worship the same God. And hopefully that's obvious. Questions, concerns on this one? Pastor, yeah. yeah, I was just wondering what folk religion... Yeah, folk religions are just... I, I mean, even if you think of, um, like... Uh, if you were to go from like tribes in Africa who have kind of their own tribal religion and you were to kind of move that more to a Western or barbarian context, um, that's typically where the language of folk re religion comes from. Yeah. Native American would also be considered folk religion. Fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. I, I, I was only half paying attention all my religious studies course. <laughs> Good thing, if I paid full attention, I might not be here with you. <laughs> There's a couple of things I think of. When I was teaching, one of my students was Buddhist, and his mother said, oh, he's a good boy. He goes to Sunday school every week. Mm -hmm. And I said, at Christian church, she says, no, we call our Sunday worship Sunday school and service. And I thought, how did they co-opt that? That's mm. kind of weird. Anyway, um, the other thing I'm thinking is I've heard people say, well, there is only one God. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter who you worship. There is only one God. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that puts kind of a wrench. In yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's good to develop some nice, just tight little quips. Um, yeah. So like, yeah, there's only one God no matter what. Okay. So what? You know, because that, what, what's the point they're driving at? Make them explicitly state. Um, what it is they're driving at, or all paths lead to God. Yeah. It's like, yeah, absolutely, to the judgment seat. <laughs> right? yeah. So some some ways of just addressing these things quickly so that we can get to the punchline of Christianity, um, the need to repent and receive the forgiveness in Christ Jesus. Otherwise, we're outside of God's salvation. You know, Francis Pieper has, um, he's one of our uh, most important dogmaticians, at least here in America. And he's got this great statement that the, that in all the world there's ever only been two religions. That's the religion of some form of works, appealing to God, right sacrifices, right living, right thinking, right mystical experiences, whatever the case may be, and grace in Christ Jesus. Those are the only two religions the world has ever known and will ever know. So one says you've got to earn your way into God's good grace and favor, and this is how to do it. That's where the differences lie. But at principle, they're the same. And the other is simply God's grace, His full forgiveness of our sins in Christ Jesus' atoning death. That's it. Those are the two religions. So I think that that's a good thing to kind of keep in mind, too. It's one of those things that can really clarify your mind, because it doesn't really matter if you're dealing with a, a Hindu who's, you know, boasting that he... He goes to Sunday school, <laughs> or whatever the case may be, or a, or a Mormon who boasts that they've wore the special underwear all these days and you haven't, or um, you know someone else who boasts that they've given X amount of money to charity, or you know that yeah. You know, as one of our politicians said, um, if anyone has earned their way into heaven, it's certainly me. Uh, <laughs> straight faced, <laughs> straight faced. <laughs> so um, yeah, these are. 
again, if you just pay attention, you can see it. All religions are either self-justifying or relying entirely on Jesus. That's it. Thank you. All right. Did I see another? A couple more. It, it's interesting. I thought I thought Luther himself made that claim about that there's only two religions: the, the religion of grace and the religion of works. He may well. Yeah, he may yeah. well. I don't know. A lot of what people it's in a good point. are doing. Yeah, drawing <laughs> yeah. on Luther, drawing on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now. My question is, can you talk a little bit about um, a strategy that the church has sometimes employed, uh, and that is where it finds itself in an idolatrous, among an idolatrous people, mm -hmm. they're worshiping a mother goddess or something like that, mm -hmm. and so they try to shoehorn that kind of worship into, say, the adoration of Mary. Or, mm -hmm. you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, is, sure. You know, this has been a practice the church has been involved in for a mm -hmm. long time. You know, the saints are mm -hmm. put in the place of of pagan gods. Yeah. Um, and I think we in the Lutheran Church criticize that as idolatry. What? But what's what's your take on that whole practice? Uh, it's almost like in a culture that worships. Uh entertainment and spectacle and feeling good um, we would we would think that we'd see the church start to adopt that as their Sunday morning oh wait yeah <laughs> so um, hardly a uh, distant phenomenon but one in which we see okay and it kind of works like this in America I mean this is the entrepreneurial church what do America what are Americans into let's make church just like that it's essentially the same spiritual principle of, hey, what are these barbarians into? Oh, they've got that trinket of bone and they worship this ancestor. Replace the ancestor with a saint and the trinket of bone with one claiming to be St. Peter's and bada boom, bada bing, we've got it all settled. Yeah, I think the, I think the whole thing is generally speaking wrong-headed. It sometimes goes under the title of accommodation, obviously a loaded term. Um, but yeah, it's this idea that you try to pair up with the culture of the native people and embrace everything that you possibly can. Um, I, what would be an example of this in a, in a good sense? What would be accommodation in a, in a proper sense? Okay, when we have gone over to evangelize in Africa, as soon as we get a group of baptized Christians together, we don't say, okay, let's raise funds so that we can get a helicopter flight with the pipe organ to drop it off in the bush. No, um, in fact, there's beautiful, beautiful recordings of the divine service, um, even, even our settings and, and our hymns, played with uh, native drums and done so very reverently, beautifully. It's, it's entirely moving because you just realize the oneness and unity we all share at heart with a cultural diversity that is um, created by God and pleasing to God. So, I think there are good examples of accommodation um, that just culture is going to be different, and there are um, there are examples where that's abusive and wrong. Yeah, it's a good question. So, what does it mean by certain lodges? Is it talking about the Masonic lodge or something else? Yeah, Masonic lodge, and and some of the other lodges just they they require you um, to to pledge uh, some kind of religious allegiance that um, is contrary to the Christian faith just incompatible with the Christian faith. I, th I think it's been so long since I've studied that. We don't have a ton of lodges around here. Um, in the Midwest, they do. So at seminary, we had all this training about you know how to like not allow your members to be in lodges. And I, but that was 20 years ago or so. <laughs> so. And I haven't honestly dealt with it. I don't think I've had a single member in this congregation be a, also be a member of a lodge that's uh, requiring of them some kind of confession contrary to the Christian faith. But that's what's meant, yeah. Masons, you would be out. Yeah. All right. Um, one more hand, and then we we had better move on. I think. Uh, sorry to backtrack, but this is always kind of bugged me. Would you please explain in the beginning of James when he says that you may not sin? I say may not sin, and if you sin. Are you How talking, does he take? Are you a, talking about John that I just uh, quoted? Did I say John? I, I mean write James. These I mean James. No, well, I write these things to you that you may not sin. That yes, that quotation also, from John. I want to say, well, when you sin, instead of if, why does he use if and and that 
does he recognize original sin, or is he talking about actual sin? Yeah, or well, what? well, without going into giant diatribe on First John, um, sin's, sin's one of his more complex and nuanced presentations. Of course, we get, um, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself, and the truth is not in you, but if um, you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. This is all John. Um, but then uh, later on, he he turns and even says, like, well, let me open it up. Yeah, it's um, 1 John 3, he says this. And, and then at the end of 1 John, he's got this treatment on, um, if you want to follow along with me, feel free to open up to 1 John. I'll try to do this without doing a Bible study on 1 John. He's, he's got a very nuanced treatment of sin. And it's really a, a wonderful way to study the topic and enrich your understanding because he's pushing the boundaries. Um, let me take a look here. Yeah, I think I think that this is, I mean, as good as any to to really drive home his thesis. So, look at chapter one, verse five. And then we'll go back to chapter three. So, chapter one, verse five. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So what does it mean to walk in the light? There's two things going on there. One is to live in accord with God's word, but the other is to not deny our sinful nature and to readily confess it so that we receive his forgiveness. So those are the two things, desiring to walk in accord with God's will and doing our best to practice that. And then, of course, um, confessing our sins and receiving his forgiveness. Those are the two things. So it's no surprise then, um, if you look at chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Remember, that's like plan A. Plan A is walk in the light as he is in the light. But part of that light doesn't just mean thinking, saying, and doing the right things. It also means being honest about our sin and confessing it. That also is thinking, um, speaking, and doing the right thing when we confess our sin and receive his forgiveness. But yeah, you see the same parallel here. My little children, I am ready these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Um, maybe even more controversially, he presses the envelope. Um, if it makes us uncomfortable, good. Yeah, the Bible makes us uncomfortable all the time. Um, chapter 3, verse 4 is what I was referring to a moment ago. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. There's the definition of sin. So again, you know, if these theologies of like you remove the law, well, you've removed sin by definition. So anything goes, which everybody's on board for with apparently until like, you know, I come and steal your motorcycle. And then all of a sudden you love the law very much. <laughs> Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides on him keeps on sinning. But I thought he just said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. You see, so by holding those two things in tension, he came to take away sins. Does he want us to sin more? No. He himself did not sin. Does he want us to sin more? No. Okay, but are, do we? Yes. Therefore, we have an advocate with the Father, the righteous one, Jesus Christ. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yeah. So, all John's doing is speaking in extreme terms here. It's great. I'm just very much like what Jesus does. Try to, try to read. Um, this is holy hyperbole. Exaggeration and absolutism, um, which our Lord preaches everywhere. Uh, almost the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount is holy hyperbole. Um, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. So are you all self-righteous then? <laughs> you see, I don't see anyone with gouged out eyes, right? So it's exaggeration to drive home a point. And it, it's not lying or deceitful. It's just to make the point in the most extreme case. It has a way of sticking in the mind, doesn't it? Exactly. Yeah, it's rather beautiful.
And Jesus teaches with holy hyperbole all the time. I'm exaggerating it, absolutizing it, and we see John doing the same thing. All right, good enough. So let's, um, you know, I just want to touch on um, the second commandment. And the second commandment, obviously, first commandment, we have the true God in mind. Second commandment, um, we're calling upon him. And this is kind of one of those things where, you know, just sort of like mentally knowing who the true God is doesn't do you much good. I mean, don't the demons even mentally know who the true God is? So to call upon him in, in prayer and praise, um, that's what this uh, meaning is all about. And there's nothing all that controversial in here for us. It's kind of the standard fare. Um, as those who bear God's name, we want, don't want to do things that bring shame to his name. Um, we pr- beg his forgiveness when we do. And rather, we want to use his name rightly, um, calling upon him in, in times of trouble, praying for others and ourselves, etc. So there's nothing really revolutionary here. Sometimes the um, the way that Luther explains it, and if you're on page um, 67, you'll see the second commandment. The way that Luther says, what does this mean? You know, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not curse, swear. Um, you satanic arts liar deceived by his name. So this sometimes gives heartburn. Can Christians swear an oath or not? Well, this this rhetoric again comes from Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount where he says, don't ever swear, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Okay, what is his point? Is his point that swearing is inherently evil? Impossible. God swears all the time. Throughout the scriptures, God swears. God swears to enact judgment and God swears to grant grace. So we can take off the table that swearing is inherently evil. Then when would it be evil? situationally or by manner of use that's when it becomes and so what is jesus doing like hey you're swearing by all of these things that aren't within your control not least of all god himself this is showing your own pompousness arrogance and idolatry simply let your yes be yes and your no be no when would it be right for christians to swear an oath court of law would be an example or some other time where the truth is in dispute and to take God's name upon your lips as an oath that he is your witness and judge. That's what it means to swear um, that if this isn't true, then God do with me as he sees fit, um, that this is a proper use of swearing. Okay? So all of that, if you want it straight from the catechism, I tried to summarize. That's page 72, question 47. Does God forbid us to swear oaths in his name? And there's other examples of um, in the scriptures of people swearing oaths. All right, so that's that's second commandment. Now, third commandment, of course, is page 74. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And the first wrinkle we have is that, well, we don't keep the Sabbath day, not in the Old Testament way. We're not meeting on Saturdays, and um, work isn't strictly forbidden. But here we see then how the third commandment, how all these commandments are given to Israel. And what's what's in view here for us is the natural law. And Luther does very well to get us to that point. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not despise preaching and his word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. Or as the author of Hebrews would say, do not forsake meeting together as some have done. So this is the call to attend church. This is the commandment that says go to church where God's word and sacrament are. Of course, this commandment was assaulted um, you know, recently when the government, without reason, um, without evidence, without science, without anything at all, um, to forbade us from gathering as a people of God. So he said, sorry, we're going to ignore you um, respectfully and, uh, and with, with an abundance of caution and love for our neighbor, but we're going to provide opportunity for people who desire to come and receive God's word to do just that. A uh, really bad argument has been made in the church that, you know, it's, It's loveless to go to church in a pandemic. It's loveless to keep your church open. It's loveless to wear a mask. It's loveless to get a uh, a vaccination or to not get a vaccination. It's, you know, loveless, loveless, loveless. Well, we have to be really careful with that language because loveless means sinful. Are we ready to say it's sinful to keep church open? Are we ready to say it's sinful to not wear a mask? Are we ready to say it's sin? And then uh, sinful to refuse a vaccine? And then... And let me drive this on point too. So, so people say, you know, hypothetically, people would say to me, Pastor, I want to see Jesus. I want to hear the gospel. Only if you have a mask, sir. 
chapter and verse, please? Yeah. So this is where, you know, this is again where um, the church as such and me as one called to the public office of holy ministry need to be very firm and unmoving in these things. Polite, um, but firm and unmoving. And then, and then what this does is allows the full expression of Christian freedom. Okay? And allows you within your domain, within your vocation and calling, your jurisdiction to make the choice that's right for you and the people around you. And this is really, re, we're reinventing the principle of Christian freedom. Okay. Here, here it is. We're just doing the groundwork. Um, and the church is, needs to position itself such that you as individual Christians can make your own decision. I desire to be vaccinated. I desire or not. I desire to wear a mask or not. I desire to attend or not. I desire to abstain from the sacrament, uh, uh, maybe the chalice or not for a time, etc. But this allows the full expression of Christian freedom and Christian love. So that's really how the church has tried to poise itself throughout this controversy and how we'll need to continue to do so. I can't remember who I was speaking with, but we recently, you know, kind of came to conclude it was really nice that we were given this trial run because it sure seems to look like it's coming back at us with a vengeance in the years to come. So we may as well take this time to regroup and solidify what principles we stand on um, in order that we can oppose any kind of tyrannical attack upon us or what God commands us to do. Okay, I know that's a controversial topic, but that's why we're addressing it. If it wasn't, uh, if it wasn't controversial, why waste our time? All right, so that's, um, you know, the third commandment, uh, is, is not despising preaching or God's word, but hold it sacred, gladly hear and learn it. Um, and then this gives us opportunity to reflect very briefly on the nature of worship. And I just, I'll point this out to you more than go through it all with you. Um, but if you look at, uh, how about question 53 over on page 79? And here um, you can see the question is, what is valuable about liturgical worship? Um, I will point out once again, if this is of interest to you, if this is new to you, um, you're going to want to see a couple places in the appendix. Um, the first one that's going to be mentioned in this paragraph um, is called, What is Worship? And that's uh, page 358. It's an appendix that really describes how faith, receiving God's word in faith, receiving his sacraments in faith, is the highest Christian work and worship one can do. Um, taken right out of our Book of Concord and derived right from the scriptures. So that would be the first, page 358. And the second would be page 378, where there you'll um, be introduced to the church year. And I won't go through that again with you, but again, the church year is done in Christian freedom. It centers our entire year and calendar on Christ. It's like you're free to you're free to do whatever you want, church. What would you choose to center your calendar on? How about Jesus? Not a bad idea. I'll take it. Um, first half about his life. Uh, second half is teaching. So let's just glance at question 53. What is valuable about liturgical worship? Liturgical worship follows this pattern. Christ speaks his word and gives his supper. The church receives and answers in confession, thanksgiving, and petition. So what's the emphasis? Is it us all gathering together doing the doing? No, that's not the primary emphasis. God is present with us, and he is serving us through his word and sacrament, cleansing our hearts, enlightening our minds, etc. And then we are responding with prayer and thanksgiving. Does that make sense? So our action is secondary. He initiates, he gives, we respond. That's the essence of uh, Christian worship. Continuing, in this way, the liturgy keeps us focused on Christ. And then what follows is just um, an outline of the divine service. The two parts of, it, of course, you, you've seen this, our divine service is technically two services. It's the service of the word, that's the first half, and the service of the sacrament. The high point of uh, the service of the word is when the pastor, or in our case the vicar, proclaims the word of God. 
Okay, the Old Testament epistle and gospel. And you, you remember this response? This is the word of the Lord, or this is the gospel of Christ. Remember that? Now, what we're announcing is not like, okay, in case you thought we were, uh, we accidentally dropped our Bible and picked up Encyclopedia Britannica and read that to you. We've got to make sure that you know that this is the word of the Lord. It came out of the Bible. No, that's not the point. The point is rather, you've just heard the living voice of the living God. This is the word, not of man, but of the Lord. And then the response, thanks be to God or glory to you, Christ, or whatever the case may be. Um, but that's the importance. That's the high point. And that's the liturgical element meant to draw that, draw your attention to that each and every Sunday that you've just heard God speak. And then, of course, the sermon hopefully is a, is a faithful exposition of that word. Um, very helpful, like uh, in this liturgy, we presently have the present setting. Um, it goes it goes the readings of Holy Scripture, then the sermon, then the creed. These three things better be in a straight line. <laughs> These three dots all better connect. If they don't, guess where the deficiency is? In the sermon. It's one of the great strengths of the liturgy, by the way. Not that we would encourage bad pastors, of course, but if you do have a bad pastor, he's going to stand out like a sore thumb because the liturgy is going to be constantly uh, causing him to look awkward and sound awkward. Uh, so it's one of the great benefits we have. Second service, service of the sacrament. The high point of that is the words of institution and the receiving of Christ's body and blood in our, in our mouths for the forgiveness of our sins. So those two high points are Christ speaking to us and Christ communing us. Those are the two high points of the service. All right, before we jump into the fourth commandment and the second table of the law, this kind of wraps up the first table of the law, the first three commandments, our attitude toward God. We're going to move into our, our, our attitude toward our neighbor. And um, we're just going to do so lightly. Um, before we do, any questions, comments, clarifications? I don't think we can go past the third commandment without talking for a second about Seventh Day Adventism. Oh, okay. Right. I, I mean, what? I think we can. Well, okay. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. But you know, what is the deal with Saturday? I mean, uh, the 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 commandment says, right, six days you'll work and worship God on the seventh. It doesn't even say Saturday. It's just you know. Pick one of seven. So why, what's the fixation on Saturday that, that seems to be present with the, with the Seventh-day Adventists? I mean, what, what's, I mean, even some Jews have worshiped on Sunday in certain times. Yeah. Um, it's just, I mean, it's just biblicistic. It, Sabbath means Saturday. It means the seventh day. Saturday's the seventh day. That's what it is. That's just, I mean, there's really no more logic to it than that. Um, what would be the, what would be the grain of truth that we could draw out of that? That it's not completely arbitrary. Um, and, and what do we mean by that? It's, it's written deeply into creation itself. Um, that God creates the world in six days and that on the seventh day he rests. It's so deeply written into it that Luther and other church fathers see on account of that, um, and they're being guided by the book of Hebrews and an argument made there that they see in this seventh day of rest, God resting from his labors, a template for the entirety of creation, where creation itself will progress through these through six non-literal days, receiving a seventh day of endless rest. Um, there's different ways of taking and understanding that theology, different ways of playing with it. But um, where where would a kind of a rubber hits the road moment be for that? Well, if you look at what Jesus himself does in Holy Week, um, six days of work and he's crucified on the sixth day, ending his work, it is finished. And then what's what is finished? A new creation, in effect. And then he rests from his labors on the Sabbath day, is buried into the tomb. Now, if you count the Friday, Saturday, Sunday, if you count in the Hebrew way, you get three days. But for these purposes, it's clearer to just think of it as his resting on this, or his finishing his work on the sixth day, his resting on the seventh day, and on the eighth day, Sunday, rising. 
Um, it is uh, it is the eighth day, this new day of creation, this sort of permanent, everlasting day that looms large in the prophets and that the church fathers pick up on really later on as their rationale for worshiping on Sunday. It's the eighth day, it's the new day, it's the day of salvation. Um, and then, of course, you see the apostles themselves worshiping on this eighth day or the first day of the week, you know, just depending on how you call it, right? Um, yeah, you see the disciples worshiping that day on uh, in Acts. So, who's good enough for them? It's good enough for us. <laughs> yeah, thanks. All right, doing okay. Let's uh, let's leap on then um, to the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment has to do with mother and father, but there's more here than meets the eye, and I'm not going to be able to do justice to it. Um, but the fourth commandment here: honor your father and your mother. Um, you can see how we've just talked about God, and God, of course, would be the chief authority. And then he gives authority to man, specifically to father and mother. That's the vocation of authority. It's a, the vocation. It's God's emissaries on earth. And so that's, that's the fountain head of the entire second table of the law that has to do with our relationship with man. It's strange for us to think about, it, but precisely because it's strange for us to think about shows how strange our minds have become. Okay. The fact that we would look and say, well, the fifth commandment, you shall not murder, isn't murder of much more value than the fourth commandment, be nice to mom and dad, shows how far and how we've fallen and how little we truly understand of God's design. Okay, Because here in father and mother is the entirety of the order of creation and the structure of authority and how humans govern themselves, of which life is a chief part but only a part. And that's why logically, theologically, the fifth commandment follows the fourth. The fourth is the most important. Um, let me uh, just read from you a, a section from the larger catechism here. This is Luther. In this commandment belongs a further statement about all kinds of obedience to persons in authority who have to command and govern. For all authority flows and is born from the authority of parents. Now, it's really easy to reason this way. Uh, you can reason this way biblically, and you can see that God makes Adam and Eve, and they are the authorities. That's the ground. Okay. Now, you can even just argue existentially when you look at the family and the family unit, that just biological truths that it takes a man and a woman to make a baby and um, you can see the imprinting of the ordering of creation. You can see the necessity of marriage and the family as a unit, literally a one-flesh unit. Of course, you can see where that's broken, but just because it's broken doesn't disprove it. It rather proves it, I mean, by the very fact that we would say this is broken. So you've got um, family as the unit of creation, mother and father as the authorities within that unit, and from this derive the authority of church and state. That's the point being made here, um, which is why Luther puts very simply, honor your father and mother. What does this mean? We're on page 81, by the way. We should fear and love God so that we do not despise or anger our parents and other authorities, but honor them, serve and obey them, love and cherish them. All right. Um, very simply, just we do not have time to get into it today. I've only got three minutes left. But very simply, um, the, the chief governing principle here is that we honor father and mother. We honor our um, authorities in the right-hand kingdom, which is the kingdom of the church, and in the left-hand kingdom, which is the kingdom of the state. That's our default position. But what if one of those authorities commands something that God forbids? or forbid something that God commands. What then? Well, there we appeal to the higher authority, which is God. Um, maybe down the road there will be opportunity for a nuanced discussion of Romans 13 and uh, why we've read it too simplistically, um, too biblicistically, if you will. Um, and why we need to recover the way that the church for 2,000 years has read Romans 13, including our Lutheran forefathers. Um, chiefly to kind of just deliver a little bit on the goods. There Paul argues that government is for the punishing of evil and the rewarding of good. 
what happens when that's flipped on its head? What happens when government starts to reward evil and punish good? Those particular individuals instituting this have ceded their position of authority. That's what happens. You are still, as a Christian, subject to authority. It's just that they themselves have betrayed their position of authority, and thus you are not subjected to them as individuals who have stepped outside of their seat of authority. This is a theological principle. We can talk about this in much more detail um, in, at a future date. Because uh, it is a it is a big issue for us these days, and will likely continue to be. Um, maybe that's maybe that's sufficient for today, as we're running out of time here. So this gift of authority, and I'll just simply kind of lay this foundation. Um, these are the these are the two kinds of distinctions you want to keep in mind. The two sets of distinctions. One set is that God creates the world in in its fallen state. Is really what we're talking about. God creates and orders the world such that you have these three estates. That's the language. And these are the family at the center, and then the estate of the state or the civil government, and the estate of the church. These are the three institutions that God gives. Okay? They're the greatest gifts and they're inviolate. Okay? Um, now, of those t- three estates, we often take two of those estates. Um, the estate of civil government and the estate of the church, and we call these the two kingdoms. Right-hand kingdom, left-hand kingdom. Make sense? Right-hand kingdom, the church, left-hand kingdom, the state. Now, Christ rules and governs all of it. That's the first point. Okay, So that, in and of itself, will destroy what has sloppily happened in our minds here in America, that the American doctrine of the separation between church and state is identical to the Christian doctrine of the two kingdoms. Not true. And that's what's led us to all kinds of, like a foretaste of disaster that God in his mercy has given us a reprieve to get it figured out, get your ducks in order, and get get your understanding of authority in line and the two kingdoms in line. Because there's going to come a time and a place where where the fathers in the family and the fathers who have the cojones to do so in the church will have to stand up and use that authority which God has given them in order to pronounce judgment on the civil kingdom, on the civil, on the left-hand kingdom. Okay, it's very important for us to get get to see that, and I think a great window is to realize that Christ is the King over all. He doesn't abdicate the left-hand kingdom and say, "Okay, well, we don't want a theocratic state, do we?" So um, just have at it, whatever you. And unfortunately, many of us in the church for, for decades now have had this false idea that Christ has left the left-hand kingdom to do its own thing. And so we've said things like, well, abortion's fine, it's just a left-hand kingdom issue. Is that true? It's not true at all. Does God glory in abortion? No, of course not. Does God glory in the destruction and guilt it leaves in the woman's heart who does such a thing? No. God desires that that sin would be prohibited, and where it's done... God desires repentance and the full forgiveness of that sin and healing to take place. So, again, this is about fatherly goodness of God reflected in creation. All right, I'm sorry, I overspoke my time here, so the Lord be with you.